wait, hold on one second. I told Danielle <laughs> I'm not that interesting, so I don't understand why you're interviewing me, but it's all right. I, I beg to differ on that. I think there's a really wonderful things that we're going to touch on and, and that I'm certainly interested in. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Conversations. This is your host, Adam Rush, and I want to thank you for joining me. For this episode of Conversations, I really pushed myself a bit and left my comfort zone. Today's episode is with Jennifer Granger, who I recently met back at the start of the school year when our daughters became friends. Now, the minute I heard Jennifer's story, I knew I wanted to learn more about her. Jennifer was adopted to a caring family, but one that she would describe as economically and emotionally unstable. She grew up in a small town in Connecticut that would not allow her to be a volunteer firefighter because she was a woman. From Trumbull, Connecticut, Jennifer went on to live in cities across the United States, including San Francisco, Dallas, Atlanta, Sacramento, and finally, Metro Detroit, which is where we met. Jennifer's superpower is her ability to connect people of all backgrounds. This has led her to a life of giving through philanthropy. And let me just state for the record that I practiced saying the word philanthropy so many times before this interview, yet I still got it wrong, so bear with me there. Now, let's hear a little more about Jennifer. Jennifer began her philanthropic work while living in New York City, where she joined her first nonprofit, the Junior League, an organization dedicated to social change in communities. Her passion for charitable work quickly expanded to multiple organizations in the New York area, including the Pajama Program, a nonprofit that provides new pajamas and books to children in foster care. And from the pajama program, she was inspired to co-create a new nonprofit, the Spirit of Hope, where they help provide scholarships to kids in the foster care system. Jennifer then moved to Sacramento, California in 2013 and continued her passion for philanthropy by helping and advocating for dozens of charities and nonprofits, including Sacramento Children's Home, Make-A-Wish, City Year, Salvation Army, Crocker Museum, and Sacramento Regional Family Justice Center. Her work was honored many times, earning her multiple awards in the Sacramento area, including the City Year Ripple of Hope Award and an award from the Broadway musical Gala. So Jennifer and her family then move to Metro Detroit in 2017. And while you'd think Jennifer would push on the brake pedal to adjust to her new city, she actually presses on the gas and dedicates her time now with organizations such as Gleaners Community Food Bank, Detroit Music Hall, The Empowerment Plan, Fashion by Philanthropy, Humble Design, Lighthouse, Starfish Family Services, Beyond Basics, and she still finds time to serve on the Governor's Task Force on Women in Sports in the state of Michigan. Woof. 
that's a lot there. So Jennifer is, she's been awarded um, honor after honor and recently uh, was honored by the, the community house and awarded the pillar of vibrancy for her work in uh, philanthropy and education. And she lives by this quote in that everybody has empathy, but not everyone has the courage to show it. And if everyone shows it, we can make our community, our country, and our world a better place. So in preparing for this interview, uh, I asked some of Jennifer's friends for background information about Jennifer. And, and one told me this, and I quote, she said, Jennifer would give the shirt off her back to help someone. Come to think of it, she literally has given her shirt off her back. So this interview just scratches the surface of Jennifer's work over the past decade, but I really think it introduces us to someone who at a young age wouldn't accept no for an answer and has put this tenacity to good use by dedicating her life to helping others. Now, there's just one more thing that I needed to mention and, and get out. Although Jennifer is an avid Detroit Tigers fan, at the very end of the interview, we briefly talk about the 1986 Mets, the team she loved growing up, and the team that she actually, I think, skipped out on school to go to the ticker tape parade after they won the World Series. But we talk a bit about Game 6 and the miraculous victory by the Mets, and for the life of me, I could not remember which New York Mets player hit the final pitch and who scored the winning run and the name of the Red Sox player who made the infamous error at first base. So I had to go back and clear up this for the record. So let me just say this. Game six of the 1986 World Series between the New York Mets and the Boston Red Sox ended after Mookie Wilson hit a dribbler that went through the legs of Bill Buckner which allowed Ray Knight to score from third and give the Mets the victory. And as we all know, the Mets went on to win game seven and to become the World Series champs. So like the Mets comeback of 1986, let's listen to another comeback story. And without further ado, here's my wide-ranging conversation with Jennifer Granger. Welcome to the show, Jennifer Granger. It's really wonderful uh, to be able to have the time to speak with you uh, today. We are here in May. This is May 1 of 2020 in the middle of the shelter in place in Michigan and COVID-19. Uh, we got through some tech issues getting on here. Now you are a Skype expert. So I wanted to start going back to Trumbull, Connecticut. Oh boy, Trumbull, Connecticut. And, you know, I grew up in New Jersey and Trumbull, Connecticut, I had never heard of until I was about 15 years old. And the first time I had heard of Trumbull, Connecticut. Can I guess? Can I guess? Please do. The Trumbull Mall? 
the little league world champions. That's exactly right. So, <laughs> so I was 12 years old, two years before the Trumbull Little League Baseball team won the 1989 Little League World Series. And baseball was my life growing up. And so all eyes were on that team and they beat Taiwan. And so after that, Trumbull, Connecticut was like a household name for me. And it wasn't until many years later, many decades later, that Trumbull came back in, into my life because there was a major league baseball player, Craig Breslau, that came from Trumbull, Connecticut. You, you may have not heard of him or not. I mean, he was just there as a, as a kid, uh, but he ended up, he was a Jewish pitcher and that's not common. So he no. was a Jewish pitcher and he was nicknamed the smartest man in baseball. He had, he went to Yale and there's very few major league baseball players that went to Yale and he studied molecular biophysics and biochemistry, same background as me, uh, and got into NYU school of medicine and then deferred. And he continued, he continued to defer for many years. So I loved Craig Breslow. I'd followed him uh, and he was the second connection that I have to Trumbull. Who did, he, who did he play for? He played for lots and lots of teams. Okay. I mean, it was like five, six teams. He never like made a big move in the major leagues, mm -hmm. but, but he was there for a while. So I have to back up and ask uh -huh. you a question though about baseball. So were you a Mets or a Yankees? <laughs> so my family is from the Bronx. So naturally, I was a Yankees fan. Oh boy! Yeah. Now I, I red sides. We're we're gonna dive into your Mets experience. <laughs> I know a little about that. So going back to Trumbull, the last or the third real highlight that I have of Trumbull, Connecticut, is we are speaking right now to the first female volunteer <laughs> firefighter from Trumbull, Connecticut. Yes, a, you are. That's my yes, 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 yes. I sometimes I forget about it. And then randomly it like will come up in um, conversation. Yeah. But for the most part, I, I don't talk about it often because I really, truly forget that I did that. But if you think about it, it's kind of insane. I was 17 at no. the time, just decided that, you know, they weren't going to discriminate against me. It was interesting. I went to the Trumbull. There's there's a few fire departments in Trumbull, Connecticut. And I went to the websites today and I was looking at some of the requirements. And the only requirement I could find was age 15 years old. Now, you were 17 at the time. Mm -hmm. and this was the volunteer fire department. Uh, you know, lots have changed. But let's just go back to that. Like, what interested you to join the fire department at age 17? OK, so basically, um, you know, Trumbull, Connecticut is a small, I don't want to say rural town, but, you know, kind of rural, um, you know, a mixture of blue collar, some white collar, just to give you sort of a background of the town. And so what you did was kind of similar probably to some, you know, towns in New Jersey, like you either hung out at, you know, the hot dog stand in your race cars, right? <laughs> or you went to like, you hung out at the fire department and people were volunteer fire firefighters. So my brother happened to be a volunteer firefighter. So we, we were at the fire department and um, they made a joke how they needed new applicants to join, right? So I said, okay, give me an application, I'll join. And I was really honestly, in sincerity, like joking around, like I had no, I wasn't looking to join the fire department. And I remember 
they said to me, oh, no, we don't let girls in here. We don't let girls in our department. And I know my brother, like behind his, my back was like doing the X across his neck, like, don't tell her that, don't tell her that. And I said, no, you can't. I don't think you can do that. Like, this is a volunteer fire department. Meanwhile, I knew nothing about any of this. I said, but I don't, I, in my head, intellectually, I'm thinking like, there's, they can't do that. They can't tell me. I mean, they had men who weigh 350 pounds who can't climb up a flight of stairs. Like, they can't tell me that I can't join the fire department. So they gave me an application because I told them that I was going to sue them. And to back up a little bit, like I grew up in sort of an emotionally and financially unstable household, right? So it wasn't like we knew a lawyer or had a lawyer or that was part of my vernacular back then. Mm -hmm. But I did tell them that I was going to sue them. And um, I came home and I told them, I'll never forget, I said to my parents, I'm suing the fire department. And they said, um, okay, we don't have a lawyer. We don't even know a lawyer. <laughs> We're not friends with a lawyer. And so that was sort of sort of my start with my journey. So I put my application in. It was a big to-do in the town. They had an, sort of a survey going around, a petition um, not to allow me to join the fire department. My brother signed it. That was awesome. Um, Your brother signed the petition yeah. not to allow you. Yeah, to join the fire department. Um, they came back to a compromise for me that said, although you're not married, they had something called the ladies auxiliary. I don't know if you know about that, but essentially they like cook pancakes and do fundraisers. Right. So and it's for wives of firefighters at that point in time. So they came to me and said, we have a compromise for you. You can you can join the ladies auxiliary. We can't let you be a firefighter, but we can let you join the ladies auxiliary, even though you're not married or a girlfriend of a firefighter. So I basically told them to shove that. um, And I said, no. Now, meanwhile, I'm in high school. I'm 17, right? (laughs) They're signing petitions across the town against me joining. And then um, they called her the feminist writer of the Trumbull Times. And she caught wind of this going on. So she started to write stories. So anyway, it turned into this big hubbub. They finally had to let me in and it's a box and it's black balls and white balls. So essentially you put in your application a month later, you go to this meeting and they can either blackball you or whiteball you, right? Mm -hmm. Super, super old school. It took them six months to get to that point with me finally. And so I had to go to this meeting and they had to let me in. They knew that they didn't have a choice. So they voted on me. I got accepted that night. And then I was like, oh shit, like I really have to fight fires now. <laughs> like, I was sort of taking a stance. So I was a firefighter for about a year and a half. So I actually did it. Like I fought fires. I went to fire school, like the whole nine yards. That's an incredible story. Was, did they end up accepting you as an equal or it was still pretty challenging to be in that environment but you have to remember right this is i'm 52 so you math on how long ago that was so it was really truly like a different age and it was just really um upsetting to people but i think sort of younger contemporaries came around to it more than these sort of older men did um the wives and the girlfriends certainly didn't like me around they were part Mm -hmm. of like um not wanting me to be there and i just i just think it was a different moment in time. Now, that being said, after I joined eight women or girls, women put in their application to join the fire department. Wow. Yeah. So after that, then they started just taking more females in. So 
That's great. I mean, they definitely tested me. Like in the beginning, they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't buy me the right size uniform because they said um, we're not going to because it was extra money to buy my size because you, they didn't make my size. So they wouldn't buy me the right size uniform. So I had like this huge <laughs> uniform, but I didn't have boots that fit. I didn't have a coat that fit probably for the first four or five months. And then when they realized that I was sticking around, then they bought me a uniform that actually um, fit me. So that's a great story. And you cleared a path, it sounds like for a lot of people, uh, a lot of women to follow their dreams and, 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 and joining the fire department. That's, that's interesting. So that idea, that perseverance, that kind of recognition of there's something wrong here, like, they, this this should not be allowed in your experience with the firefighter application. Are there other times in your life that you could give an example of when maybe something similar happened where you were told no uh, for whatever reason, uh, but you use that no as fuel to then find a way to get accepted or find a way uh, to succeed at something. You know, I think if we can, you know, again, back up to my uh -huh. this childhood of being, you know, emotionally and financially unstable. And, you know, I don't want to totally, you know, be dismissive of my family. Also, on the other caveat of that, yeah. I was adopted, which is kind of an interesting dynamic to be adopted. But then in a family that was not, you know, financially stable for the most part. So there are when I, I do understand, like, when you're in um, a financial situation like my family was for a long time, you don't, it's a lot of stresses, right? So that nurturing and that emotional stability that you would normally get in a family sometimes just goes out the door, right? Because there's so many worries about, am I putting food on the table? You know, our roof is falling, literally falling, you know, off or over us, um, a roof over us, but not sort of um, always working well. <laughs> so, I, I think in, you know, in that, that was my childhood. So it was, could be pretty difficult at times. Um, but I think I, I always knew innately between right or wrong. I always, like my family was pretty racist. Um, sex is for certain. Um, we didn't hold a lot of the core values. Like I remember fighting with my father about the death penalty when I was like 10 years old, right? Because he believed in the death penalty. I didn't. So I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I've often wondered about that. Like, is it because I'm adopted and I have different genetics or um, are you just innately born that way where you have your values and your opinions and it doesn't matter how much that nature versus nurture argument? Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, the nature versus nurture, you know, if you're having that discussion at 10 years old, that's that's quite a precocious discussion to have at that age. And do you understand why, what led to you recognizing, right? So the, just the idea of recognizing that you're different or that these are the situation, this is the circumstance that you're in. You described it as a, economically and emotionally unstable. I think there's a lot of people who don't recognize that at a very young age. And there's a point where they start to see it maybe when they're in school and they see that other kids are different. Do you remember in your childhood when you started knowing that your family situation, the socioeconomic uh, status was what it, what it was? I think being raised in someplace like Tomo, Connecticut, my family wasn't so far off, although 
the emotionally un- unstable, that sort of venue of it, economically, maybe a little bit different, but it wasn't like we were so far off right. from everybody else, right? Because it was sort of that rural kind of uh, mentality. I just think I always knew that I wanted something different, that I didn't want this life. I just didn't know what different looked like. Gotcha. And what exposures did you have that allowed you to develop a different thought to allow you to know you wanted something different? Like usually you have to see something different at times. Right. I would say that, and this just came up, I was at a, um, one of my non-for-profits, I was traveling with them and we were talking and it was so it was different people from all over the country. And I was talking to someone sort of about my background. I, I really hid my background for a long time, like just maybe in the last five, four or five years, I've been pretty open about that. I didn't attend college that, um, you know, my background looks very, very different than I think when people meet me mm. that they would expect, especially when I say I'm from Connecticut, right? Mm -hmm. So if you meet me and I'm dressed up and I'm in an event and I say, I'm, oh yeah, I grew up in Connecticut. I think there's this automatic assumption, like what boarding school did you go to? Right. right? But so we're having this conversation and this man was from Arkansas and we're talking about, and he said, you know, what I think you need to realize is that there's a big difference between being raised poor. I hate that term, but like impoverished or whatever that looks like in Connecticut than there is in Arkansas. Right. Because I think naturally in Connecticut, you are um, through osmosis, maybe you are going to be exposed mm-hmm. to a different lifestyle. Right. right? right. Or see things differently. Like I grew up in Trumbull. I'm three or four or five towns over from Greenwich, Connecticut. Right. So some of that is going to seep into your life. It's just contingent upon whether you grab that and that's what you want. But I know a lot of people where I grew up and it's totally fine. They live great lives. They just stayed. Right. And that was that was what they wanted. Right. I just always knew I was sort of an outlier. Like I just always knew that this was not going to be my life. Like I think my mom said I came home and it was like I maybe was in sixth grade and I had gone on a play like a play date back then. Right. Play date. And um, I came home and I didn't know that they were called draperies at the time. But the women, the mom had like placemats and it matched the draperies. And I came home to my mother and I was like, I want that. I want to have those things on the windows and they match the things that you eat, you eat on them. And I remember my mother saying like, oh my God, we don't, we didn't even have plates that matched. Right. And she's like, oh my God, you were totally adopted into the wrong family. <laughs> like we are never going to have any of that. Right, right. So, um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, maybe I was exposed here and there and. But I don't think that, I mean, I think exposure helps, but I think unless in your heart or soul or whatever that feels like, you know that you want to have something different. When was then the first time that you would describe as leaving Trumbull and, and where where did you go? I went to, um, okay, so we should back up about the college thing, right? Because I sort of okay. need to explain that. And And again, for the record, I never told anybody that I didn't go to college, right? I mean, not until maybe, I remember the first time I told somebody and I was like, God, that wasn't what I thought. It was maybe four or five years ago. 
where I was open about it, right? Someone asked me, it was the, um, actually the CEO of this nonprofit city year that I do a lot of work out of their work with. They're based in Boston. I'm involved with them locally and on a national level. And I was with the CEO um, and we were having dinner together and I just hugely respect him. And we were talking and he said, I just want to understand your heart for philanthropy, why this means so much to you specifically around city year and the work that they do in inner city education. And, and I said, just, you know, I didn't go to college and it just came out of me, you know, and I never said that to anybody before. And the world didn't explode. Like he didn't kick me off the, kick me out of the table and say he never wanted to talk to me again. Right. He was just very thankful that I was, had the safeness to share that with him. So he was definitely the right person to tell. And then I just, after that, I just sort of started owning my story about it. Right. Like I just became more and more comfortable um, if someone had asked me five years ago, where did you go to college? Mm-hmm. I would have danced around that. I had every mm-hmm. single <laughs> like story to like get myself out of that question. Right. Um, yeah. Where now, for the most part, I mean, if I was in a situation and I thought it was going to stop the conversation and it was going to be a very awkward moment for other people, mm-hmm. I might not say it. But for the most part, when people ask me now where I go to college, where I went to college, I, I will say I didn't go to college, which now saying it out loud, like talking about it, it sounds so um, insignificant and kind of silly, but it really was a weight that was a burden for me for a long time. Like I was very ashamed of it. I I could understand certainly carrying that. And then I would imagine once you started talking about it, it became just a burden off your shoulder. Oh, it's like, it, it was like, a weight was lifted. And the other other portion of that, which is so psychologically interesting, I, I think, is I could not public speak to save my life, right? And so specifically more in Sacramento, where Chris and I came from than here and, and maybe more in New York, we had a much bigger, I would say, public persona and profile uh-huh. via what my husband did and what I do. And I had was asked to public speak a lot. And we were honored all the time and all that stuff. I couldn't public speak to save my life. And like two seconds before I would say to Chris, my husband, like, you need to do this for me. I'm going to faint. I'm going to, once I told my truth, I can really publicly speak very, very well now. Like people who knew me in California, even my husband and see me here, they're like, oh my God, what, like, you're like a different person. Right. But I think it's just like um, before I felt really honestly, like I was living this facade or this lie and people didn't really know who I am, even about my background, like I would never tell people about my background, right? Because I think people had this whole persona or perception of me, right? That, And I'm married to Chris, who went to Yale, London School of Economics, Cornell, right? Um, He has this job. And so that wasn't the persona that I was living, or people thought that, right? Or these expectations of who I should be. And then once I live my truth, I feel like a different person. I mean, that's really interesting. And it's something that I want to dive into when I was kind of looking at your, you know, the, your involvement and experiences over the last couple of decades. One of the kind of topics that came up in my mind was, you know, you must be involved in a lot of public speaking and the comfort level, you know, uh, of being able to do that had to evolve over time. And and I want to I'm going to touch on that. I'm going to jump around a little uh, because I want to when we do talk about that, I want to kind of find out like what your self-talk is 
before these events and and you know how do you prepare yourself uh, for those uh, but let's just go back i want to wrap up trumbull and you never went to college so you know most a lot of people end up going to college at say 18 19 years old what were you doing in those years you know that maybe some friends were going to college how did you spend the next five, seven years of your life? So I ran with a group that really didn't go to college. Uh-huh. I, and I just want to talk for a few seconds about that. So I think the, um, the difficult part about growing up either in my family or in a town like Trumbull, Connecticut, and I don't want to like negate Trumbull, Connecticut because it sounds terrible. It was, you know, it was a nice place to grow up. But oh, absolutely. I would say it's a lack of expectations. Right. When there's this expectation that you are going to be who you are. My brother got into a lot of trouble growing up. And so I was coming up as his little sister. So there was this expectation that I was going to be a troublemaker, too. I mean, that's sort of the, you know, small town mentality. And it just sort of this. Yeah. I mean, a lack of expectations that you are never going to be. And when you're raised in a family. Like if I was a waitress that had, and there's nothing wrong with, again, with waitresses, but if I was a waitress and I had medical benefits, then I had hit, hit the gold pot. Right. Right. And that was going to be good enough. Um, and I was always sort of the black sheep of the family because I wanted more, right? Like I didn't want that life and I wanted to get out. So I'd say lack of expectations and, and any kind of child is just can be the killer of you. Right. So I left Trumbull when I was probably about 22. I worked for a while. Oh, this is a good one too. So I worked at this company, Uh Flavors and Fragrances. Oh, this is a good one too. Uh Flavors and Fragrances, manufacturing company, right? And I was like, I don't know, office manager or something. But I worked there for about seven years um, from like right out of school. And, And understand, like I was also helping pay. Like I had to work, right? When you talk about not going to college, it's probably different now, like scholarships and all financially, but I had nobody working me through that path. No one talked to me about going to college. My parents didn't go to college, right? So there was no conversation around you apply for financial aid. So I had to work. And in essence, sometimes I was supporting, you know, I was giving money to my family, right? So um, I had this job and, but I always, you know, I was working and they moved me up to like office manager and um, it was a family run company. And then it was a, the older father, older is probably like 55, but mm-hmm. back then it felt like, you know, 95. And, um, he hired like two salespeople to come in, these two young guys who just got out of college. Their fathers had been in the industry, right? Blah, blah, blah. And I thought to myself, that's what I want to do, right? This is what I want to do. I wanted, I didn't even know what sales was, but I thought this sounds great. Like they get to go out, they get to talk to people. So I went to him and said, I want to do sales, like what they're doing. And um, he came back to me and said, no, we we can't give you that, but you can be their secretary. And so I quit Mm -hmm. after seven years. And my parents thought I was crazy and they were really upset because <laughs> I had medical insurance and I was getting paid and um, I quit. I just knew it was wrong. Like he couldn't say to me, I mean, I know I didn't have a college degree, but I don't think they really cared about that. Right. It was just more that I think I was a girl and that wasn't the expectation of me. Right. And that I was going to be an office manager or se- secretary and that should be good enough. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a similar, I mean, similar 
elements of you applying to be a firefighter, right? And someone saying no to you and you not accepting that. And in, in this case, uh, you know, there wasn't a petition or anything like that. So you did the next best, best thing. Yeah. yeah. And my family was aghast, right? Because this was like for them, wasn't, they didn't understand career, but for them, this was stable. I was getting a good salary. I was helping support them in certain ways. Like my grandfather passed away. They didn't have money for a funeral. So I had to pay for his funeral, like taking out a loan on my American Express card that I had to pay off for a long time. So that was sort of shocking. So I quit. Um, and then I moved to South Norwalk, right, which is like the cool kind of spot. Like if you didn't live in New York City, you're going to live in South Norwalk. And I was working. I was a hostess for this rattlesnake bar and grill, which maybe still is there. So I was a terrible waitress, like an awful waitress, but I was a really good hostess. Like waitress was not my forte, but I was a good hostess. So anyway, down the street, this is talks a little bit about how my life and how I ended up in New York City. So down the street was this new technology company that just had opened up micro warehouse, right? It was on the forefront of technology and startups like way before it was really, really well known. And they were all young and they would come into this rattlesnake bar and grill for happy hour. So I got to know them, this whole group. And the manager who was like my age said to me, you should come apply. Wow. And I said, no, no way. Like, he's like, no, listen, we're growing so fast. We're looking for anybody. Like you have really good social skills, come and apply. So I thought, okay, like I'll go up apply, but they're never going to hire me. So I remember there were two positions, one, and it was inside sales. And it was um, either selling to business customers or selling to the government, which I didn't know anything about any of this. But I always loved politics, right? And like, you know, 10 fighting with my dad about the death penalty. And I always loved politics and government. So I thought, okay, I'm going to apply for the government job, right? So again, they, I go to apply thinking they're never going to hire me. To be honest with you, I did fudge a little bit about my college, which was awful, but there's no way I was getting hired. I just said I attended Sacred Heart University, which I had taken like three classes there. So, And they hired me and I became the number one in like it was on the inside sales. I became the number one sales rep within like six or seven months in the government sector. They sent me to way to Bermuda. Like I won this like sales trip meeting. Like I thought I was the shit, right? I thought like I had made it. And then I thought, I didn't really know what outside sales was, but I kind of got a sense like you went outside and you talked to people and that seemed fun. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do this for a year and then I'm going to go do outside sales. Mm -hmm. But these are sort of internal conversations in my head. And then um, this girl that I, girl, woman, we were so young that I worked with, um, went and got a job with this technology company out of Canada in New York, moved to New York City. And she contacted me and said, they're really like, you know, hiring like crazy. You should come apply. And so, again, I thought, I'm going to apply. They're never going to hire me. Mm -hmm. Applied and interviewed and they hired me. So I moved to New York. I think I was 27 or 28. Um, by myself, didn't know anybody, just packed up my stuff and started this job in New York. Wow. This is, uh, I see, uh, kind of the, you know, the breadcrumbs leading you down this path of taking that leap from being a host to working at, it was micro warehouse, right? Micro warehouse. Yeah. yeah. The 
box. Yeah, I mean, so they saw, right? What I mean, this manager saw something in you. They No, I don't think right? so. Either, you know, wanted to get with me or which was, you know, how yeah. back then, or I think they were just hiring like crazy and they needed to hire, right? So Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe right. maybe that's the case. But, you know, I think when we talk about your uh, last couple decades uh, of philanthropy, being able to have those social skills, the ability to connect with people, I mean, it sounds like a lot of those seeds were planted, I mean, during these years. I mean, that that's kind of what it looks like for me here, at least thinking about this. Something that I read that you said was, no matter what city, and, and, and we're going to take a jump now, we're going to go okay. from living in an apartment in New York City by yourself, you know, paycheck well, to paycheck or with a roommate. Through a room like a little tiny. Yeah, yeah. Apartment. Uh, but kind of kind of making it on your own to the impact you have had on so many people's lives and organizations now. Um, and this has been a common theme in your life. I mean, goes back to New York City. So you took the leap in New York City, it sounds like. And one thing you said was, and we'll get a little more granular here, but you said, no matter what city I live in, my top priority is how do I give back to the community and its people? And you started in New York. And I don't know if it was before or after uh, you got married, but your life, and it sounds like your mission changed. Yes. W would you say that, that th that's the case? Yeah, I think so. It was my second time living in New York City is when I met uh, Chris. So I was in New York City, San Francisco, Dallas, Atlanta, and then back to New York City. And that was the second company that moved me um, around. I was sort of the fi fixer upper. So if I was coming to town, you were getting fired. And then I built a whole new team and got it up and running. And then they would move me wow. um, someplace else. So my second go around is when I met Chris. I was 35. Um, when I met him and we were, he was, he's three years younger than me, which he acts like is about five generations, <laughs> but he's three years younger than me. We got married at, he was 33. I was 36. Um, so I would say getting married. Um, I never thought I was, you know, I, I just thought I'd be completely focused on my career. And, and I, I knew until I thought intellectually in my head, I couldn't be married and have children and work the way I worked. And so I wasn't going to do either poorly so I just always, I assumed at that point in my life, but anyway, I meet Chris, everything changes. We end up getting married. And I would say that was the point of this like sort of change in my life. And I remember we were sitting in this tiny little first apartment in New York city. I mean, literally a walk up on the upper West side. I think our first Christmas together, we had to decide whether, um, we didn't have enough money for either drinks and a Christmas tree. So we went with drinks because we didn't have room <laughs> in our apartment for a Christmas tree anyway. Yeah. Uh, so not that we obviously were not impoverished. We're living in New York city on the upper right. West side, but he, you know, we started out like, um, a lot of people with, you yeah. know, and we have a lot of family resources, any from my end, any family resources yeah. to support us. So, um, so, but we're sitting there and we're, you know, when you're youngish or yeah. young, just getting married and you're talking about plans for the future and what your life is going to look like. Right. And I remember saying to him, Chris, you know, someday you're going to have this big job. Like he was working for the NBA at the time, right? 
um, in the league office. And I said, someday you're going to have this big job and I'm going to be a philanthropist. But I couldn't say the word correctly because that's a hard word to say unless you say it a lot. And he said, well, if that's what you want to be, you should probably learn how to pronounce it correctly if that's what you want to be. So fast forward, we're in California, you know, and we were at this event and, you know, we're always getting our pictures taken for the magazines, like, you know, the local magazines. And uh, the photographer wrote underneath it, Chris Granger, presidency of the Sacramento Kings, Jennifer Granger, philanthropist. And I called up Chris and I was crying. He said, oh, my God, what are you okay?" And I said, no, we did it. We actually did it. (laughs) Like, remember, I said that in the apartment 12 years ago or whatever. I said, we did it. And so I have that cut out and framed. Yeah, Yeah. that was like a big moment. But, you know, going back to this, because I think, Adam, you're maybe trying to define like, where did this my urge for like expanding my horizons or being different or achieving things. And, And I think like, I was just in a situation where like I had to outwork everybody, right? Like I didn't go, I knew, you know, I didn't go to college. I didn't have that kind of what I thought was exposure. I didn't grow up in a privileged background. Right. And so I just thought I, I'm not smarter than anybody else. I don't have more skills than anybody else, but I have to outwork everybody. Right. And so that was sort of the basis of my life. Right. Once I got out of school, I, I did not do well in school. But once I got out of school, that's what I knew, that I just had to outwork everybody. And I knew that one thing that I was good at, I was good at outworking, right? So I knew that if I put in 12 hours, most people were going to put in eight. It's something that I, I say the same thing uh, to, about myself. You know, I, I always say, like, I'm not, I'm not smarter. And I, I try and tell this to my kids. You may not be smarter, but don't ever let anyone outwork you. Out. Yes. Yeah. And that, as you know, right, like that's sort of the basis of it. And if I didn't pay my rent, I was homeless. Yeah. Right. So when you work from fair, right. And you work working from fair is much different than just working right fair that you're not going to pay your rent. And I think I ha- got this opportunity, right? Like I got this job at micro warehouse. And I remember, um, again, these are like internal conversations and probably not articulate and my 20 year old mind is now, but I remember thinking like, this is my one shot. If I screw this up, then I am never going to get out of this, right? Wow. This is my one shot to make my life look different. And then, so then I just, I just ran with it and I got very lucky. And let's, let's be honest. Like I had a fair, I had white privilege, right? If I was an African-American girl in the inner city growing up in sort of that situation, my life would not look like it looks now. So I always try to be cognizant of that also. Absolutely. And um, how you apply this now uh, to philanthropy, do you feel like anything from your childhood, as as As, you explain, the economically and emotionally unstable environment, what from your childhood, if, if anything, you think is driving you today or in the last 10 years uh, in your uh, philanthropic endeavors? Well, I would say, you know, one of the reasons why City Year touches me so deeply is um, I don't know if you know much about City Year, but they're core members. They're part of AmeriCorps. Um, they go um, here in Detroit. They're in nine or 10 now. We've grown. Mm-hmm. Um, done really well and our most under-resourced schools, right? But it's part of AmeriCorps. 
Um, it's a national organization, um, and we do amazing work. So they're core members. They're these kids that give up a, essentially a year of their life to do service in the schools that need it the most, right? So I first visited a school in Sacramento, California, and I left. They gave me a tour of the school, and they introduced me to the core members and sort of showed me what they did. And I left, and I got into my car, and I cried. And I remember thinking, my God, I, you know, I do so much work and, and I, like I like to do the actual work. Right. So I, I'm exposed to a lot of different tragic situations. And I thought, God, if I cried every time, I would be sobbing all the time. So why is this affecting me? And I remember just thinking, like, oh, my God, if I had had a core member. Right. If I had had someone because I say I work everybody, but, you know, some of it is like you have to have some sort of smarts in your life. And I remember I had a history teacher who told me that I was smart and no one had ever told me that I was smart. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember that teacher. I remember his name. I remember him saying to me like he was degrading me, saying it's such a shame that, you know, you get bad grades because you're a really smart girl. And I just remember thinking, my God, if I had had a core member, if I had someone that had seen something in me, although I got to where I am and it's an awesome life, I'm never going to say anything negative about my life. Like I have to pinch myself sometimes. I have so much gratitude, but it was really hard, right? And I straight off the pass a couple of times, my life could have looked so much different than it looks right now. Um, and getting here was really hard. And part of it was luck. So I just think like every child should have that opportunity. And especially if you talk about like the African-American community and what that looks like and that I was sort of the exception to the rule probably in my town, but like for an African-American child to come out of the inner city, like you have to be an exception. You have to be an exception. And that is so unfair, right? Because every child is an exception and every child is amazing. Right. So I just I feel like I just see this inequality and it just it drives me crazy. Like I, I just can't understand why we would treat people the way we treat them, like subhuman. Right. So empathy is really at the core, I believe, of, of your life and your ethos. And it's empathy. It is probably empathy, but it's like this. I get riled up about unfairness. Right. Uh -huh. Like, I don't know if you can define that as empathy. So you said, uh, at least I, I, I read that one of the quotes that you live by is everybody has empathy, but not everyone has the courage to show it. If everyone shows it, we can make our community, our country and our world a better place. Yeah, I have to say that was from Congresswoman Doris Matsui in California, who I was friendly with. And she had that quote during one of her speeches. And I thought, God, that is so amazing, right? Because... I guess you're right. Like empathy and un being held up about unfairness is maybe it is the same thing. And I just feel like people don't say enough. Right. Like, I think that's part of that quote. Right. Like you see something that's unfair and you stay quiet. Right. And you don't take a stance against that. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, empathy is a difficult area to explore because I think you could easily fall into the, you know, bucket of pity you know, a, a feet, right. Or kindness of just being kind. I think empathy takes this. I, I think you, you touched on it, right? It's the ability to be able to step into someone else's shoes and mm -hmm. then understand their feelings yes. and then do something about it, whether it's just emotional, whether it's just your own recognition 
mm-hmm. of this. So in your current life right now, when you're working with organizations, can empathy be cultivated, right? Can you teach empathy? And and if so, how? How do we, you know, if we go back to that quote, um, it, it, we say everyone has it, but not everyone has the courage to show it. What can we do? Is there anything that comes to mind? I would love to say, yes, we could yeah. teach empathy to the entire world and it's going to make our world a better place. I, I don't know. I, I think I do think most people are good, right? Most mm-hmm. people have a goodness about them, right? But I don't think you can. But unless you have, yeah, I guess we need to, I guess I need to, this is a great learning for me. And then I need to sit down and, and really decide in my head what empathy means or what it looks like or the true definition in my head about it. But um, I think for for me, you know, you're right. Like I can put, I guess that's where my empathy comes from. Like I can actually put myself in someone's shoes. Like I can remember that feeling, right. Of being scared that, Oh my God, I don't have money to pay my rent. Like, am I going to be homeless? Um, and, and I often see homeless women on the street when I'm, you know, out feeding or whatever I'm doing. And I think they're always there for the God, grace of God go I, right. Cause I was, could have been in that situation. Um, that's a harder thing for my children. And I struggle with this, right? Like my children are hopeful and hopefully knock on wood, right? Never going to have those feelings. But do I think I can teach them empathy? I think through role modeling, Mm. right? I mean, they're never going to be able, hopefully to say like, oh, I know that feeling of being worried about where I'm going to eat or not paying my rent or, but that's what I hope for that I can role model for them. One of the questions I really wanted to hear your opinion on is how do you get children involved in philanthropy or service really in in general? You know, um, is it as simple as that you just said, you role model, you, you take them with you or, you know, what are good projects or good ways to get children involved? You know, and I think so interesting. Like I have, I, one daughter who she came up with making my older daughter making kits for the homeless herself on her own 10. She decided that this was something that she was going to do. So she makes these, been making these kits. We've made thousands of them. I have another, my little one, um, who is sensitive, but it's just, she's the one who we have to not mold, but we have to talk to her more about it where I feel like my other one, it just comes and that empathy just comes sort of neatly more to her. So it's interesting. I think it's just personal dynamics of who you are. I take them, I take them to feed the homeless. I take them to do different things. They understand. I think for them being philanthropic as a family and being community minded, I don't, I don't think they're going to know any different because that's what they say Chris and I doing. Right. And I, and I have to be honest, right. Like in Chris's position as in sports, sports is such a powerful platform to do good. Right. So I've been very lucky that I married someone that I have a platform. I would have done this work anyway, but um, we just have a bigger platform to talk about the power of doing good via sports. Right. Um, So I think for my kids, it's just, this is just, 
the norm. So it'll, and I always think it'll be interesting to see if one of them goes into philanthropy or working for a nonprofit. I hope they become city or core members right. um, when they're young adults. But I think it's just exposing them as much as you can to what other situations look like. And although they might not get it, or they might be, I find that sometimes children in our children, right, are sometimes really uncomfortable when you face them with this because they're either scared or they don't understand what, why this would happen, but somewhere in their mind, they're like re registering this, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know how it is, Adam. You can tell kids who talk to the wait staff unfairly, right, or treat them disrespectfully. You know where they're learning that from. I'm like, I could pick your parents out of a lineup because <laughs> <laughs> they're doing the same exact thing, right? No, so I think a lot of it is just um, role modeling to your children. Gotcha. And it's funny, you know, you had, you had talked about earlier about not being able to pronounce philanthropy the right way. And I noticed that I has, have said it probably incorrectly a few times. I'm using the tropism philanthropic, uh, which is like, you know, heliotropic is like the, you know, the, the attractiveness of the sun. So I am working hard to say it the correct <laughs> way myself. See, the non-college <laughs> graduate is teaching the fancy doctor yeah. something. I'm listening yeah. very, very closely to you. So, okay. Another, I think, special talent or really being able to, you know, develop a skill is when you, you're someone who you sit, you sit on boards of nonprofits, you're co you co-found nonprofits, you're in, you know, developing these programs, ultimately they get funding. They need involvement, they need participation, and ideas are a dime a dozen. The difference is the execution. And how do you think about, you know, you can think about this question this way, like what advice would you give if someone is looking to start an organization or a nonprofit, how do you kind of tell the story to get encourage people to inspire people to give to take their wallets out and write a check or to show up and give time right i mean because you give you probably give both um but how do you get other people to do that i mean i really do think that people are always looking to do good mm. i mean and that's like my hashtag do good you see my hat is like, be good to people. Um, I think that people are, are just genuinely want to do good. It's just steering them in the right direction. And I think like your, um, Danielle, your wife is helping me right now. We put together this thing for these clothes drives and food drive, and we're going to sort it in my garage. You may not know that she's coming over. We're going to have wine. We're going to sort clothes. <laughs> I did not um, know that. <laughs> but I, you know, I think people are always looking for an outlet to do good you just sometimes they just need to be, I know this sounds terrible, but just need to be told what makes sense or what's going to be effective. Right. And I think people need to trust you. And I think I've built a trust that people know that what I'm doing, I'm always doing for good. Like I'm always doing because I want to make a difference and I'm strategic and I vet the organizations and I understand that how to do that. But that wasn't your question. Your question was if someone wanted to start their own nonprofit. Well, I think you I, you answered it. I just think uh, framing it in a way of, you know, it sounds like it's relationship building. It's being mm -hmm. genuine. It's having people trust in kind of the bridge between you and an organization 
right? And, you know, I think as far as advice to give people, if there's anything for maybe younger people who are starting nonprofits, right, who need funding, like what, what are things that people could do? You know, we're in a really challenging time right now for that. But let's say we're some, some basic principles that, that people could apply to raising money, to getting people to dedicate their, donate their time. I think, you know, one thing that really sticks out to me is that you have to be passionate about what your cause is, right? Like you have to own it. You have to be passionate about it. Um, unfortunately, but probably fortunately for a lot of nonprofits, I'm passionate about everything. <laughs> people have told me like, Anything that I feel like is in unjust in the world, I can pretty much get fired up about and want to help. But I think you just really need to be passionate about it. You need to have a you need to have a story, right? You need to to really be able to articulate why you're passionate about that cause. And you do just need to build the relationships where people trust you. Well, I, I think that's a good segue into the area of you're going to ask if I'm running for politics? N- not, okay. yet, not yet. Not yet. But, but that, that could be on the table. I saw you at Dancing for the Stars. Oh, thank God. That's the hardest and, thing yeah. I've ever done. But, but the second here is something that you were so passionate about uh, with the Lighthouse of Michigan organization uh, that you had no – that you – you had no problem putting yourself out there, being exposed in a, in a way, right? Being vulnerable to participating in dancing for the stars in, in Detroit. And, and I guess what I wanted to ask is, what's your self-talk? And, and this goes back to the idea of public speaking. What are you saying to yourself? Because you're, you're a public figure. And how do you maintain, you know, on one hand, how do you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put myself out there. And number two, how do I maintain composure? Because anything could happen. Anything could go wrong in, in doing it. You know, my biggest, I, I know what you're getting at with this, Adam. Like my biggest issue is I'm pretty impulsive and I say yes a lot, mm-hmm. right? And I don't really think, like I'm not, like my husband is super processed. Like sometimes it takes him <laughs> to answer my question. I want to strangle him. And he always says like, I'm like a, he's like a tugboat and I'm like a speedboat. Right. And it's hard to keep up with me. But I don't think in that situation when they said came to me and said, I think they were shocked that I said, yes, first of all, when they asked me to do it, I just said, yeah, I'll do it. Why not? Like, why? Why the hell not? Right. And then in the after effects, I'm like, oh, shit, (laughs) (laughs) which you could see probably is a lot of my life. Right. Um, but you kept, you do, you did it. You stayed committed yeah, to this what? like really uncomfortable situation where you could have just I put my name on something like, and I'm raising money for charity. Like it would be awful if I just decided like, Ooh, now I said, I'm not going to do this. I mean, it probably would have been pretty easy to bow out and find someone else, but you didn't No, because that's not fair. <laughs> that's not like, that's not, wouldn't be the right thing to do. Right. What am I teaching my children? Like, it's just not, I don't know. I never even thought about bowing out because I don't know. It's like I said, I would do it. So, and I, I mean, I was at that studio three or four times a week. Like there's, I mean, I don't think. Because at that point you have no, like, what am I going to do? Get up and make a fool on it? Like I have to. You're all in. I I had to be all in. (laughs) I danced in front of 350 people. It was most, it was an unnerving experience. Yeah. Yeah, but I figured, what's like, as long as I don't fall, like, 
No, so you were great. I, I saw it. And um, you, you probably, you know, I think I think maybe the judges had had it rigged a little. And, and I think you, you probably <laughs> should have won that. <laughs> so, all right. What um, knowing what you know now, what would you tell your 30 year old self? 30 year old self. Wow. Yeah. I thought you were going to go way back. You know, like when you were, for example, tr- uh, working at the rattlesnake. Honestly, I don't think I would have told myself anything differently mm. than what I did. Right. Like I think taking these and I, I've never really thought about it before, but you sort of strung this together that my life has really been taking leaps of faith. Mm-hmm. Right. Much to the secret, like, you know, my father, my father has passed away, but much to his dismay, like every time I made a move like that, I think a little bit, it was like, that's our meal ticket. What is she doing? And part of it was like, why would she do that? But, um, I guess it's like always taking a leap of faith, right. And hoping that I always just thought it somehow would work out and it couldn't be any worse than the situation I was in. Right. So yeah, I think when you, we start piecing that together, it's being passionate, believing in yourself and telling yourself, you know, let's do it. Let's let's take that leap of faith. We'll learn something. And maybe we have to, you know, someone tells us we can't do it. We find a way. To, we find a, yeah. a way. I mean, to, to be honest with you, I was never quite that reflective and thinking like I'm going to learn something from this. Like that's for really smart people. I was never that reflective. I was more like... I'm just going to do this. And I think it was more defiance. Like you are not going to tell me that I can't do this. And I don't, I don't know. I don't think I was raised that way. I mean, it's certainly like, I don't, what parent raises someone that says I, <laughs> I'm going to be defiant all the time. But, um, but my older daughter, she is so much like me. I think that's just an innate thing. Like she is, no one is going to tell her no. Right. So I think that's maybe that's the way you're raised. But on that note, you know, I've met both sides of my biological families. And I always thought like, Oh, my God, there are fancy people out there. And that's where I'm from. And nope, not true. (laughs) They're not fancy. (laughs) They're not. They're hardcore Republicans. So I don't really so that nature versus nurture genetic thing. Yeah, I'm sort of an anomaly. I don't know <laughs> what happens. Well, we, we, we could probably uh, spend a whole few hours diving into that for sure. Oh. Uh, so what what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And that could be it could be an investment of money. It could be an investment of time, an investment of energy. Anything come to mind? An investment that you've made? I think just in an investment in the philanthropy that I do that realizing in my life, like, and again, I I want to, I want people to understand I'm not a proponent of not going to college, right? Because what that happens is your lack of options, right? Lack of expectations, lack of options. Like, did I love technology? No, there was nothing about, as you can see with the Skype trying to set it up, there was nothing about technology that I loved, but it was my only option, right? It was my only option to be in this, like, I should have probably have run a nonprofit, Right. So I think finally in my life, you know, being able to invest in what I'm passionate about, which is philanthropy and helping people and making a difference. Is there a what's next in your life phase or idea or thought? Are you going to continue with 
philanthropy? Are you thinking about politics? Are you thinking what, you know, what's next for you? Do you have uh, any ideas? I have thought about politics. You know, I was appointed to the governor's commission, right? I was, just became a governor appointee. Um, I, I would say with the politics, more people have come to me asking if I would be interested in getting in, into politics. I do think that's of interest to me. I would just have to um, really sit down and do sort of due diligence, which now it's taking me to 52 to like actively like think about things um, of whether I can make more of a difference in that role or if, if I'm more impactful in the role that I'm in right now. Right. So I'm sort of going down that path. And, you know, that's the only thing I, I do. That's when the college degree comes back to me because I get nervous about are people going to vote for me even though I don't have a college degree or is that going to be something that's enticing to people because I've worked really hard, you know, so I, I kind of start to go down that path a little bit too. So we'll see. I'm still deciding. On yeah. that. Now, a lot of your philanthropy is with children, it's with families, hunger, housing, clothes. Um, do you see yourself staying in this, in this area? Do you have any potential changes of, of where you want to focus your time and energy in the future in addition to this? No, I just, I think that this is enough. There's so much need in these spaces that I work in and I branch out into sexual and human trafficking. Like, yeah, I mean, there is just so much need. Like the Detroit public school system is this, this pandemic is uh, once again, just showed the real inequality in our systems. And um, I'm hoping that if anything comes out of this, it'll be um, this shining a light on what, how we need to just make some real changes. So I can stay involved or become more involved in those sorts of discussions. All right. So we're, you know, I know we're, we're kind of coming to, to an mm -hmm. end here. I know, I know we have to, we have to wrap up. Um, one thing I wanted to, I wanted to kind of ask is there's a quote, another quote that I came across that you had said was, think you know one of your favorites or that you like to live by it's it's don't judge someone else's story right. by the chapter you walked in on and i was thinking more and more about that it pertains so well to what we just discussed about your life about you know if you would walk in on your life in your 20s and 30s although you are the same person in so many ways I think it's that your potential was kind of kept in mm -hmm. uh, until you had this opening, this opportunity to really uh, get involved in, in and touch people's lives um, in the ways that you, you do now. And right. I think the second or we'll call it the middle, the middle part of this book uh, is quite fascinating uh, in different ways than the first third of this book uh, has been fascinating, I think. In your but life. if you, you think about that quote, though, right, it, it pertains to me now, right, where I think people, as I said in the very beginning when we started this, like people meet me uh -huh. and because of the car I drive or what Chris does or what I do in the community, they have this perception of me and they're already prejudging me. Yeah. I can see it in their eyes, right? It's either, you know, and um. I always think like, you don't know anything. <laughs> you don't know anything about where I came from, right? And how long it took me to achieve what this looks like, right? Yeah. And the pain, like 
the pain that, I mean, there was a lot of pain that I went through. Um, so it's like interesting in, in either. That's why I love that quote, because it really can re- relate to anything. I like it as well. I really like it. Um, something I'm going to tell my kids for sure. So uh, where can people either find you or what organizations can they, you know, pay attention to in, in the area that they could get involved in potentially if they're looking to help out? Uh, anything that people could do? I'm a great, I mean, I, I think if I, I've sort of trying to hone down and, and what what I'm good at uh-huh. and I'm a great connector of resources, right? Uh-huh. So I can see that there's an issue here and oh, I know this person in the mayor's office that could potentially fix that issue, right? So if anybody wants to reach out to me, if they're interested in any nonprofits, mm-hmm. um, even if they don't have a specific one, but they know what they want to work in uh-huh. or they'd like to help in, um, they can reach out to me and I can certainly connect them to a nonprofit that I, I think would be, um, could use their skills or resources. Is there a public way that someone could reach out? Like, um, um, Well, my Instagram is Lady Granger. Okay. B13, uh, or if they want to reach out to you and then you can forward them on to me. Absolutely. Right. So super. I'm also doing a clothing drive right now. Um, I just joined the national board of the Salvation Army and they do a lot of really unbelievable work around the nation, but here specifically sure. in Detroit. So that's Danielle and I are working together and we're going to take clothes to um, a homeless shelter that's just for women and their children. And also um, homeless people who are being quarantined right now that are showing symptoms of the virus. So if anybody has clothes, they want to give. Gotcha. That is a great place that we could we could end here. And I want to really thank you for for the time you've given us here today. I've really fascinating journey thus far, and I know we didn't get to talk about the 1986 Mets. <laughs> and skipping school to attend the ticker tape parade. Uh, but I do, I have a ticket stub from game six. The Are one you me? I have a ticket stub. My aunt and uncle were at the game, and it was the one that uh, Mookie Wilson uh, hit through, um, what's his name's legs? Uh, the first baseman. I can't even remember. Oh, yeah, I can't name. remember his name. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, I can't believe. Uh, I can't believe I just forgot his name. Anyway, um, or I don't know who hit it. I, I don't even remember who hit it, but I, I think Mookie, I think it was Mookie and Gary Carter came home, maybe something like that. Anyway, it's so long ago. Yeah, uh, it is. But listen, I'm no longer a Mets fan. You know what kind of fan oh, I am? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm a Tigers fan. <laughs> My husband that's would right. kill me if he heard me talking about the Mets right now. Oh, it's all Tigers. Right. Yeah. That's and we were going to play again and we're going to have a season. Yes. Working on that right now. So yeah, it is happening. Sports will be back. uh, Absolutely. So, so Jennifer, thank you. Thank you again. Well, thank you uh, for having me. Like I am not that interesting. So I appreciate your kind words. Oh, absolutely. And there was so much here that is, um, that I'm going to think much more about and reflect on and, and teach my kids and hopefully try and use this to become a better person myself. So, so thank you. And (laughs) um, appreciate your time. Okay. Thanks, Adam. All right. Take it easy, Jennifer. Hey guys, this is Adam. Thanks again for listening. If you liked this episode, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast and leave a review. Every positive review helps. Also, 
Remember to subscribe to the podcast so you automatically get episodes downloaded to your podcast library. Please send any questions or feedback to the email conversations at roshreview.com. If there is someone you have in mind who you'd like for me to have a conversation with, please let me know. Don't forget to check out the Rosh blog at roshreview.com backslash blog for more excellent content. And if you are a student, a PA, nurse practitioner, or doctor who is in a training program or residency or has an upcoming exam, take a look at roshreview.com and sign up for a free trial. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you at the next episode. So long.